Hey, miserable bitches, we have a 30-minute manner mystery episode for you today. And this episode is going to be the horrific and unsolved Axemen of New Orleans. Ah. What a head-banging song that is. I don't really listen to, like, rock music or whatever that genre is. I'm more of, like, a Nicki Minaj, Meg Thee Stallion, Cardi B type of guy. But I kind of like that song. And every time I hear it, I just find myself, like, head-banging to it. And I love it. So it's here to stay. Um, I don't, If you haven't noticed yet, you haven't heard a peep from Emily in this episode because she is not present for this episode, and that is my fault. We recorded this episode on Tuesday, and um, I don't know what happened. I was, like, deleting some of our, like, practice runs. Like, typically, we'll, like, record 10 seconds just to make sure the audio sounds good, that the, the mic is hooked up, everything sounds great. Um, and instead of deleting those, I deleted the episode. So she's not here today. Unfortunately, she could not make it. She has been very, very, very busy at work. She does a lot of their events. Um, so she's kind of like, she's an hour away right now. And she's been there since 7am this morning. So she's not going to be here for this episode. But we're not going to just, just because she's not here, not give you the content that we promised you because that's not fair for my stupid actions for us to take this away from you. I promised you two episodes bi-weekly, so damn it, I'm going to make it happen, even if I'm by myself. So I'm going to quit yapping and I'm going to get right into this. Like I said, these are the unsolved and like mysterious episodes that we're going to be doing bi-weekly. Um, they're just called like our 30-minute manor mystery episodes. So if you have an unsolved or mysterious case that you want us to cover, please shoot us a DM on Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast and let us know. Or you can just email us at miserymanorpodcast at gmail.com. So like I mentioned earlier, this is going to be the unsolved and terrifying Axemen of New Orleans. So beginning in 1918, for about 18 months until 1919, the city and surrounding area of New Orleans experienced 12 attacks and six murders committed by what they called the Axeman, who struck mostly in the middle of the night. The Axeman made his gruesome attack while people were sleeping and never used his own tools, only what he found within the household. The item he typically used was an axe, duh, given the name, and he would leave it at the crime scene after his attack. His victims were mostly Italian grocers. In New Orleans around this time, the axe murders um, victims typically lived in the French Quarter, which is the oldest section of the city. Now, it's kind of like a decrepit um, area with like townhomes and grocery stores, um, and it had become, quote, the Italian neighborhood at this time. By the early 20th century, Italians were taking over the corner grocery businesses. They owned 7% of the grocery stores in New Orleans by 1880. By 1900, 19% were Italian-owned. And by 1920, they ran 50% of all the groceries in the city. 
So on May 23rd, 1918, at 4901 Magnolia Street, Catherine and Joseph Maggio, who were prominent Italian grocers, fell victim to the very first attack of the Axemen, being struck violently with an axe and then having their throats slit with a straight razor. <laughs> Catherine's wounds were so severe that she had been almost decapitated and ended up dying by asphyxiation of, on her own blood. The bodies were discovered by Joseph's brothers, Jake and Andrew, who lived in the same house. So it's kind of like a duplex, um, just split between. So one house split between a wall. They lived on one side. The brothers lived on the other. But strangely enough, the attack was never heard or seen. Andrew discovered his injured brother and sister-in-law roughly two hours after the attack had already occurred. And he, he found them out by hearing like strange, like groaning noises. Um, sounds like they were in some trouble on the other side of the wall. And he's like, I better go fucking check out what's going on. So Andrew blamed himself for the failure to find, um, uh, the couple sooner because he had came home from the bar in a very intoxicated state um, because he was out celebrating because he was about to depart to join the Navy, which good for him. You know, he was out and about with his friends and his family um, celebrating, partying it up. If you've ever been to New, New Orleans, then and now party city. So when he gets home, obviously, like, you know, when you're drunk and you get home and you just like pass out, you eat something and pass out and you wake up and you're like, what the fuck happened? I think that's kind of what happened to him. So in the apartment, the law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer as he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. A complete search of the premises was completed by police after the bodies were removed and the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. Police uh, ruled out robbery as motivation for the attacks uh, because like money was laying around, valuables were laying around and none of it was moved. None of it was taken. None of it was like misplaced. Um, so they quickly ruled out robbery. So the razor used um, to slit the couple's throat was found to belong to the brother, Andrew Maggio, who owned a barbershop on Camp Street. His employee, Esteban Torres, told police that Maggio had removed the razor from his shop two days prior to the murder, explaining that he needed to have something fixed on the blade. There was like a little nick or something. But they quickly investigated his alibi, and he was not a person of um, suspect of the murder. So they did find out, though, but before uh, fleeing the scene, the murderer left the bloody axe, which belonged to the family. It had like their um, last name engraved on the handle. On June 28, 1918, near the corner of La Harp Street, Louis Brasumer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked as well while they were asleep in the bed at the back of the grocery store that Louis owned. So back in the day, I don't know if people still do this, but these grocery stores had like living quarters in the very back. So that's kind of where they lived and slept. And Louis and his mistress, Harriet, got attacked while they were asleep. So Lewis was struck with the hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a severe skull fracture. 
Harriet was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived to the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka. Now, John was a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery store in order to make his routine delivery. I'm sure he had his little breads and his danishes and all that good stuff. And he walked in was like, what the fuck? So Zanka found both Lewis and Harriet in a puddle of their own blood both bleeding from their heads. So Harriet would survive for another seven weeks before dying, but Lewis made a full recovery. So when questioned about the attack, the couple told police that a large white man with an ax had attacked them. Similar to the first murder, the bottom panel of their bedroom door was missing and a bloody ax remained at the scene. On August 5th, 1918, in an undisclosed home location, Eight months pregnant, Anna Schneider awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly, repeatedly, okay? <laughs> her scalp had been cut open and her face was completely covered in blood. Anna was discovered after midnight by her home, wait, by her husband, Ed Schneider, who was returning late from work. What a fucking sight to get to when you get home from work. Holy shit. So Anna was bloody and had been severely attacked. However, she was still alive and was rushed to Charity Hospital, where she miraculously survived the attack. Upon investigation, sure enough, the Schneider's axe was missing from their shed. And get this shit. One week after the attack, Anna successfully gave birth to a beautiful and healthy baby girl. You go, girl. And guess what? She named the baby Axie. Axie. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I don't know what she named the baby. But I used to love the name Axel. Like, I wanted to be named Axel, um, but I got Cody instead, so... All jokes aside, I think that's a beautiful name. I don't know what she named it. <laughs> so on August 10th, 1918, near Tonti and Gravere Street, 80-year-old Joseph Romano was found by his nieces, Pauline and Mary, after they heard him struggling in severe pain. Pauline and Mary awoke to the sound of a commotion and struggle in the room where their uncle lived. Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts, and blood everywhere. Poor Papa. So the Axemen was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were unable to distinguish, um, sorry, they were able to distinguish that he was dark-skinned, so opposite of what Harriet and Lewis claimed. He was a heavyset man and wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. A dark suit? Damn, they come in to the house to kill the people in a suit? I don't even wear a suit to work. So, 80-year-old Joseph, though seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet unfortunately he died two days later due to severe head trauma. In August 1918, the citizens of New Orleans were freaked the fuck out because of all this, and they wanted answers. So the New Orleans State newspaper posted an article that said, quote, Armed men are keeping watch over their sleeping families while the police are seeking to solve the mysteries of the axe attacks. Extra police are being put to work daily. This was used as a scare tactic to basically tell the axemen, beware, bitch. And it somewhat worked. There were no more attacks for seven months following the release of that article. However, on March 10th, 1919, Charles and Rosie 
Cordomagilia, not sure if I'm saying that right, became the next victims on the Axemen's list. Rosie had awoken to her husband Charles fighting the Axemen. Rosie, Charles, and their two-year-old daughter Mary were all attacked with the axe. Screams were heard coming from the residence, so a fellow grocer named Giordano rushed across the street to investigate. He's like, what is going on? Oh my gosh. So upon arrival, Giordano noticed that Charles, his wife, and their daughter had all been attacked by this unknown intruder, and there was blood everywhere. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound clutching her daughter, screaming and begging for help. Charles lay on the floor, bleeding profusely. So the couple and the baby was quickly rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that they had suffered skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the house, but much like the previous attacks, again, the panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of doctors until um, she recovered. So they would repeatedly ask her, like, can you remember who did, who did this? Who hurt you? Who did this? Was it Giordano? They were, like, trying to find answers. But according to her doctor, Rosie said she didn't know. She just kept saying, I don't know. I don't remember. I have no clue. Um, sadly, though, their two-year-old daughter, Mary, died from a single axe blow to the back of the neck, nearly decapitating her. So this is where we get a little spooky ooky, baby. So on March 13th, 1919, the Times-Picayune news station received a letter from someone claiming to be the Axeman addressing it from hell and saying, quote, esteemed mortals, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fallen demon from the hottest hell. I am what you citizens of New Orleans and your foolish police call the Axemen. When I see fit, I shall come in and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty. But let them beware. Let them try not to discover who I am, for it'd be better that they never knew or they can incur the wrath of the axemen. Undoubtedly, you New Orleans think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Oh, I was almost out of breath doing that. So, however, the most important part of the letter stated a specific threat to the citizens of New Orleans. It said, quote, now, to be exact, at 12.15 o'clock, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. I'm, I'm picturing like a, a Santa sleigh. So he's going to pass over New Orleans. And he says, quote, in my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition for the people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose a jazz band is playing in full swing at the time that I arrive. 
if everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is that if some of those persons who do not have jazz on Tuesday night, if any, will get the axe. So the night uh, mentioned in the letter was March 19, 1919. The citizens of New Orleans took this message very seriously, and no one was murdered that night. It was said that the city was truly alive as jazz was blasted from every home, and those who could not afford a record player instead crowded into the jazz bars and clubs. Um, that sounds like a fucking amazing night. Like, New Orleans is always, is uh, already a badass city with jazz music. Like, can you imagine pulling an all-nighter just listening to jazz music? I would have to get drunk, though, because at any minute, if I saw somebody that looked like the Axeman, I'd be nervous. So the letter would also go on to inspire a popular jazz song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me, Papa. I was going to insert a clip of the song, but I didn't want somebody, I think you have to do like the, I don't own the copy or the rights of the song. So look it up yourself. It's called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me, Papa. It is a vibe. I love it. So that was short-lived. Five months later, on August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca was badly injured in his home after he awoke to a man to, next to his bed with an axe. Steve managed to survive the attack, reportedly staggering to a friend's home and then collapsing on the ground. The friend then called police. So Steve did not end up uh, regaining his memory, likely due to the blows of the head. So he was not able to tell police what this guy looked like, what he did. He had no recollection. So in early September uh, on 2128 2nd Street, 19-year-old Sarah Lauman was apparently attacked by someone who entered through an open window of her home in the middle of the night. She was discovered unconscious on the ground in a puddle of her own blood and missing her teeth. Like Steve Boca, when she regained consciousness, she could not recall the details of the attacks either. A bloody axe was discovered on her front lawn. The following month, on October 27, 1919, at the corner of South Scott and Eulola Street, the Axemen attacked Esther and Mike Pepitone. Esther reportedly awoke around 1 a.m. to her husband screaming bloody fucking murder and ran into the bedroom to find two unidentifiable figures in her bedroom fleeing the scene. Her husband's head had been struck 18 times and his skull cracked open. He died two hours later. So the murder had apparently been committed with not only an axe, but also with the bolt uh, with a heavy nut at the end used to secure like a large circus tent. And this made sense because there had been a circus on a nearby avenue that same weekend. So Esther, scared and frightened with everything that's going on in New Orleans and what just happened to her husband, she got the fuck up out of there and she went all the way to Los Angeles and ended up marrying a guy named Angelo Albano. However, this is fucking weird. On the second anniversary of her former husband Mike's death by the Axemen, her current husband Angelo disappeared and was never found again. What the fuck? Ever. So Esther recalled, though, that before her marriage, Angelo had ended business relations on bad terms with a man who went by Joseph Mumphrey. So let's talk about Joseph Mumphrey. On December 5th, 1921, Joseph Mumphrey visited Esther's home at 5554 East 36th Street in Los Angeles. He demanded 
$500 in Esther's jewelry, threatening her, quote, I will kill you the same way I killed your husband. However, Esther being a bad bitch was not going to let him get his way, and she ended up shooting and killing him with the revolver, putting an end to his claims. However, police arrived at the scene to arrest Esther for the murder. But she claimed to police that Joseph Mumphrey was the axeman, and based on the occurrences and the threats, and after a thorough investigation, she was acquitted for Joseph Mumphrey's death. So due to the nature of the murders and the fact that fingerprinting technology was not a standard procedure, there were only a few theories as to the Axeman's identity. So let's get into those theories. So theory one, and remember, this is who people think, what they think, or who they think is the Axeman. So theory one, many think that not all of the murders were committed by the Axeman, and instead some, like the cases of Mike Pepitone, Louis Brasumer, and Harriet Lowe, were mob or spy killings or even copycat killings. Mike Pepitone's father had previously killed a man in the past, which could have provided a motive for a possible revenge murder. Louis Brasumer, who survived, was actually charged with the murder of his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Police found that Lewis had written letters back and forth in Yiddish and Russian, and they eventually came to the conclusion that Lewis was part of a German spy ring or a spy master. Before dying, Harriet also apparently blamed Lewis and accused him for being a Nazi spy. The case was investigated just as a domestic dispute, where police theorized that it ended with Lewis attacking Harriet. However, Lewis was acquitted. It is also speculated that these could be copycat killings and actually the work of two or more people. Theory number two, this is that the Axeman is a supernatural figure from hell, like he mentioned in his letter, and could possibly possess the power to shrink or expand as needed in order to break into the house of one of the victims. In the Axeman letter, in the Axeman's letter, he brags that he's, quote, a spirit and a fallen demon from the hottest hell and is, quote, invincible, invisible. Well, I guess invincible, too. <laughs> so theory three, many people believe that Joseph Mumphrey is the Axeman, which I, based on the uh, evidence, I think it's Joseph Mumphrey. This was claimed by Esther Pepitone after she uh, had threatened after he had threatened her to kill her the same way he had killed her husband. Esther recalled that Joseph Mumphrey was the axeman and had seen him run from her bedroom the night of the murder uh, her husband was attacked. The LAPD noted that there was, in fact, evidence linking Joseph Mumphrey to the death of Mike Pepitone, which eventually led to Esther's acquittal of Mumphrey's death. Evidence included the fact that Joseph Mumphrey led a blackmailing gang in New Orleans that preyed on Italians. And like I mentioned, all, almost all of the Axeman's victims were Italian grocers. Mumphrey was also in and out of prison for the past 10 years, and this time outside of prison coincided with the attacks of the Axeman. However, there was not enough evidence to directly link Joseph Mumphrey to the crimes and only ended up being circumstantial evidence plus testimony. Esther's testimony also directly conflicted with her previous statement. So in 1919, she reported seeing two people fleeing the scene. But in 1921, she said Joseph Mumphrey had been the only man she'd seen murder her husband, implying 
that she had seen only one person and not two, like she had previously stated. Girl, get your story straight, honey. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. So although it is not known when the investigation into the Axemen was ended, there were more possible killings attributed to him, although they also conflicted with mob murders at the time. So there was a lot of axe killings. There was a lot of mob murders. They were like, I don't know which one is doing it. So we don't know. So regardless, the axe killing spree eventually ended and, all, and almost all the victims were laid to rest. So the known graves of the victims are Kathleen and Joseph Maggio in St. Louis Cemetery Number 3, Joseph Romano in Greenwood Cemetery, and Mary uh, Quartamagilia in Hook and Ladder Cemetery, all in New Orleans. And the reason why I, throughout this I say the cemeteries that they're buried in or the streets that they lived on is because, as you know, or I hope you know, and if you've been to New Orleans, you know that a lot of these cemeteries, you can take ghost tours on them. Um, and it's kind of just adds to the spooky, especially if you go to it like, oh, look, that's, you know, Joseph Maggio. I know what happened to him. Um, there's even some Axeman ghost tours that you can do in New Orleans um, that kind of show you the houses that he attacked in, his little route that he took to kill people. It's all obviously um, like, it's been updated since then, but it's still spooky and eerie, and I love it. And I'm going to be in New Orleans along with my boyfriend and my friends for my birthday in October. So maybe I'll take some pictures and go on these tours myself. But that's all I have for this episode. Um, like I said, if you have any suggestions on any unsolved or mysterious cases that you just want us to cover for a quick 30 minutes, I'm sure I could do this whole episode in an hour, but I just want to keep it kind of like a little mini-sode every other week for you. So send us your recommendations and please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you and good night. Emily will be back next week. Mwah.